Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and joining me, as always, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hey. How are you doing, uh, um, podcast host at large? Yes, yes, it's a bit like that sometimes, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm well. I'm quite well, surviving the uh, the inevitable weekly dust storms here in Western New South Wales. We had another one yesterday. Uh, we, we had a horrible day yesterday. It was cold. It uh, rained enough not to be of any use to us in the mm. middle of a very intense drought. It was really windy. It was cloudy. Then we got a bit of sunshine and then a dust storm. <laughs> it was a hell of a day and very cold, very, very cold for this time of year. Beginning of summer and we were down into single figures. So, um, yeah, you figure it out. I can't. It's uh, it's bizarre weather. How's your part of the world, Fred? <laughs> Much the same. Uh, we've got smoke as well, of oh, course, yes, from yeah. the bushfires. We've temple. had our share of that lately too. Yeah, it's your yeah. smoke. It just blew over here. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think it's to be technically correct. I think it's smoke uh, that is generated between you, between us, actually, up in the mountains there, uh, between your inland western plains and our coastal strip. It's uh, yeah, set on the mountain. All those mountain people, yeah, deliverance country. It's all their fault. Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Having uh, been involved with bushfires, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> no, no, it can be pretty tough. Now, yep. uh, we have got uh, a large array of topics to cover today. We're going to uh, talk about a supermassive black hole that's been found that ought not to be there. Hmm. Uh, a planet with liquid water but no life, which well, it's is... Called- it's called the Earth. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, and some questions for a place on Earth with liquid water that doesn't have life. Yeah, that's, that's right. what we're getting at, yes. Um, and, and questions about the age of the universe from someone's grandmother. No, oh, grandfather. Grandfather. Pay attention, Andrew. I'm going well today. Uh, a star that apparently went supernova twice. Yeah. I got that one right, did I? And um, Andrew Broadhurst uh, Broadhurst has emailed us to find his place on Earth. We're going to do that for you, Andrew, hopefully. Uh, But first, a super massive black hole. This is enormous, this thing. Um, And it's been found where it shouldn't be. They don't think we should have one of these, but we do. We do, yeah. Uh, It's a really interesting story from a number of points of view. Uh, And it actually has echoes, uh, Andrew, of a story that we did not long ago, if if my my memory serves me correctly, which was about a black hole that was too small to be a black hole. Um, But this one's too big to be a black hole, at least by our present understanding. It clearly is what these things are, but it's a remarkable thing. So it's too big and too small, 
it's, no, not, this was... it's, it's not in the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> that will be the problem. <laughs> yeah, the one, the, the too small one I think we covered a, f- a few weeks ago. I was just trying to look back in the list to see if I could see it, but I, I can't. But never mind. We're talking today about one that is bigger than has hitherto been thought possible for a black hole. Um, and it interests me, the story interests me, partly because of the way it was discovered, because this... Um, uh, black hole candidate was discovered using a telescope that I had quite a bit to do with when it was being developed. It's called LAMOST. In, uh, it is a telescope in China. It's not very far from Beijing. LAMOST is an acronym. If I remember rightly, it's Large Aperture Multi-Object Spectroscopic Telescope. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. And it's an, a very unusual telescope built in a very unusual way. Um, uh, I sat on a committee, in fact, two committees that looked at its uh, work uh, during the early part of this millennium. Um, so, so I think it was 2005, 2009 or something like that I was in China to, to um, help uh, put this telescope not put it together, but to, to plan it and plan what it would do. And I was very honoured to be able to do that. It's a project of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, very, very worthwhile and now succeeding very well. It's uh, one of these telescopes that uses optical fibres to to, to uh, l- analyse the light of many, many objects rather than just one or two. In fact, I think they can look at up to 4,000 objects simultaneously, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. So what did they do? Well, they were surveying... Uh, the, 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 the team of astronomers, um, and, and it's led actually by a group from the National Astronomical Observatory of China, uh, NAOC, uh, that, uh, that group used the LAMOS telescope to look for uh, stars that have a big range of velocity. Uh, so you're looking for something whose velocity changes over time, but changes uh, quite significantly um, in, in terms of it's what we call the radial velocity, the, the line of sight velocity, because that reveals something either going round the star or the star going round something. You're, you're looking at the forward and backward motion of the, as the star orbits. Now, it's a commonly used technique for finding planets around other stars. Planets are invisible, but you can see the way the, the star is pulled backwards and forwards by, by the invisible planet going around it. Uh-huh. But the same trick can be used for something much more massive, like a black hole. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So they used the telescope to to find a candidate for something that had some interesting stuff going on. Uh, and then they followed it up with, uh, with more, what you might call more targeted telescopes. The, um, actually, two of the 10-metre-class of the telescopes, uh, LAMOS, by the way, is a 4-metre-class telescope, They're much the same size in terms of its mirror as our, uh, our Anglo-Australian telescope here in Australia and the Kitt Peak uh, four-metre telescope uh, in Arizona. Uh, so, um, the, but the group doing the observing of this object um, basically followed up with two 10-metre-class telescopes. One is uh, the Gran Telescopio Canarias, which is on the island of La Palma. It's a 10.4-metre telescope operated by the uh, Spain with a number of collaborators. Uh, and one of the two Keck telescopes, which are similar 
classes, actually. I think the GTC, the Grand Telescopio Canarias, was a copy of one of the Keck telescopes, effectively. The, these were all in the in the 90s, these instruments were built in the early 2000s. Keck, the Keck telescopes, of course, are on the island of Hawaii, uh, the big island of Hawaii, mm. at Mount Air. So those two telescopes were used essentially to follow up the details of what's happening with this uh, this star uh, what it is what is it that's pulling it around uh, tugging it backwards and forwards and um, the conclusion the inevitable conclusion is that the star is in orbit around a black hole and the black hole is calculated to have a mass of 70 times that of the sun and that is a, a surprise because people have really, until very recently, we thought that the, the stellar mass black holes, as they're called, mass ones with similar mass to the sun, were, you know, to find one with 20 times the mass of the sun will be a big one. Mm. And then we, we had evidence from the gravitational wave detectors of things a little bit bigger than that colliding and forming even bigger black holes. And now we've got evidence for a, a, a single black hole that is bigger still, 70 solar masses. It's actually a record breaker. I think that is the largest known, or the most massive known stellar black hole. It's being called LB1. And I suspect LB1 stands for La Most Black Hole one yeah. uh, and <laughs> good on them so um i think the, the 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 issue now is how can a black hole of that size basically um how can it be formed um I, one thing a, a piece of information i forgot to add andrew is that um, the star itself the thing whose velocity is being measured that's got eight times the mass of the sun but it's going around something much bigger yes. well, 10 times bigger the 70 solar mass black hole its orbit uh, period is 79 days um so it's you know you, you if you look at the theory of black holes um the biggest that you can make by what you might call normal methods, and that's by stars uh, at the end of their lives collapsing uh, in on themselves and forming this highly dense nucleus. Uh, it, it's about 40, 40 to 45 solar masses, but this is, of course, much bigger. Uh, and one possibility uh, for its existence is exactly what I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, a merger of two smaller black holes, um, which could 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 easily form something this size. But then you've got to look at how that could have happened and still have a normal star, a relatively normal star in orbit around it, uh, the, the one whose who's backwards and forwards motion has betrayed the presence of the black hole. So still many, many questions about this, uh, this piece of astronomy. Uh, I think it's uh, very, very interesting stuff. Uh, and it, it actually highlights this is this was the the common ground between this story and the one we covered a few weeks ago uh, in that these are black holes that are not revealing themselves by the fact that the, the companion star is pouring material onto the accretion disk of the black hole and making it blaze away in X-rays, mm. which is the way that stellar mass black holes have conventionally been discovered. But this one. It's not been discovered like that, and it, it seems like 
um, well, one one statistic that comes from the the leader of this project is that there's about 100 million black holes believed to exist in our galaxy, but only a tiny fraction of that, perhaps 4,000 of them, can can generate the X-rays that actually give you the you know reveal the presence of the black hole. So this is a new way of finding black holes, and it's unearthing all kinds of interesting stuff. Gosh, and if we've found one this big. Does it stand to reason there might be something even bigger? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I mean, you know, in a way we know that there's no limit to the size of a black hole because we we know already that um, probably all galaxies, but certainly many galaxies, have uh, a supermassive black hole at their centre. And I think the biggest one of those is many billion times the mass of the sun. Mm. So there isn't a limit to to how big a black hole you can get. Uh, Maybe what we're seeing with these, you know, 60, 70 solar mass black holes, uh, the start of the process that leads to the supermassive ones, because the supermassive ones are thought to have formed by accretion of huge amounts of material around them. Okay. Wow. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure if they, um, now that they've got a system that seems to um, give, the, give away these things, uh, that it won't be long before we find another one. Yes, I think that is probably true. Yeah. All right. Uh, there we have it. A, um, a black hole that uh, we thought could not exist does exist, and they have a new system for locating them now, which may open many, many doors and create many, many, many more questions. <laughs> You're listening All of to... which will come to Space Nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's very likely. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy Uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. 
Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Once again, a big thank you to our patrons who uh, put their money where their podcast is. We really appreciate your support. And uh, Fred, our, our numbers have grown by minus one over the last <laughs> week, which is awesome. Uh, look, it's one of those things. People come and go, and um, you know uh, they do it voluntarily. So, uh, and any gesture that you make towards the support of our program is certainly um, wonderful. So, thank you. Uh, now we have got a situation on Earth, and you and I have discussed this many times in the past, where. Uh, the old saying goes, where there is water, there is life. And that was something that we hoped would translate into the discovery of liquid water elsewhere in our solar system or other parts of the, uh, the galaxy or beyond. However, it seems there is a place on Earth with liquid water, but no life. This sort of shuts the door in our faces a little bit on the old where there is water, there is life theory. That's right. So it's a, it's a mantra that we can't use. Uh, I suppose you could change it to uh, where there's water, there's usually life. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to now. Um, but this is a, a, an interesting story about a really interesting place on Earth, which I confess I haven't come across before. Um, and it is uh, a, a geothermal uh, area in Ethiopia, Uh and I'm probably going to mispronounce its name, um, but it is D-A-L-L-O-L, Dalol, Dalol. Not sure. It could even be Dayol. It would be in, uh, in a Spanish-speaking country. Um, it's worth checking out uh, online, the, the, the Dayol, Dalol hydrothermal system, because the landscape has got the most astonishing colours in it, uh, coming from some remarkable chemicals and reactions that are taking place within these geothermal pools. I've seen, um, uh, I was in the Yellowstone Park a few years ago, and there's, I think there's, if I remember rightly, there's a, a something called the Rainbow Pool there, which has some quite spectacular, uh, spectacularly coloured deposits. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, um, you, see, you see similar things uh, in New Zealand around Rotorua. You do, that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so thermal lakes are just... The thermal uh, lakes. Some of them are just you know, brilliant greens and oranges yeah. and blues. They're quite incredible. But you have a look at Dalol and... Um, I'm looking at a photo of it right is, now. Isn't it staggering? You would think it had to be another planet. That just couldn't be exactly. on Earth. <laughs> the only thing that makes it look vaguely normal is a blue sky with little puffy well, clouds. In the background, yes. <laughs> um, apart from that, it looks incredible. So um, the why are we talking about this, apart from the fact that it is an extraordinary-looking area? Um, the, the, the research uh, on this pool has looked at... But most particularly, the the fact that it is a very very adverse area. It's the water is anoxic, no oxygen, hypersaline, huge amounts of salt, and hyperacidic. So it's it's battery acid oh, as right. well. Um, and uh, that's sort of in in many ways. You know, it's the kind of environment that you say, well, if we're going to find extremophiles anywhere, this will be the place. Mm. And you throw into the mix that some of these 
uh, pools are at a temperature of 108 degrees Celsius, which means they're boiling uh, because you're at atmospheric pressure. Uh, it is, uh, it's, you know, it's a really um, very adverse environment for living organisms. Nevertheless, back in May, I think I'm right in saying this, a paper was published that uh, I'm just trying to find the title of it, that basically said, well, we found things uh, in this in these lakes that are microorganisms. Ultra-small yeah. microorganisms in the poly-extreme conditions of the Dalol volcano north afar Ethiopia. Ethiopia. You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> that was a paper in... Uh, published... yeah, I, just, I just finished reading it <laughs> while you were talking. Uh, very good. Did you enjoy it? I don't understand a word. <laughs> um, so, and, and I'm quoting from the introduction. It says, "Here we report for the first time evidence of life existing within these hot with within these hot springs using a combination of morphological and molecular analyses." Um, and uh, you know, the the idea was that there was evidence of life, and they, they quote again, entombed within mineral deposits. Um, and where the life forms that they thought they'd found were were sort of related to uh, organisms that have been found in other hypersaline environments. Uh, so the combination of morphological and molecular analyses, that's the key to this May 19, 2019 paper. Morphological just means that it looks like life, mm-hmm. it means the shape is like living organisms. Molecular means that you've got some chemical similarities there with living organisms. Um, however, what has now happened is a new paper has been published, uh, also in the journal Nature, um, which is has a number of uh, authors, um, I think from Spanish... Uh, universities. I need to check up on that. Uh, the the lead author, I think, is uh, Dr. Uh, yeah, okay, here we are. This is the, the lead researcher is Puri Lopez Garcia. Um, and uh, I'm just looking to find out it's what Australian institution mate. that is from. Um, they are do 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 okay. <laughs> That's terrible. But the, the, the works come from the Spanish Foundation for Science and Technology, which makes me think that they are Spanish uh, investigators. It's a French-Spanish team, OK. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, Dr. Lopez Garcia is from the French National Centre for Scientific Research, CS, CNRS. Uh, so that's where that work originated. It's, it's a, it's you, know, a, you know why you didn't see that straight up? Why would that? It's in supermassive bold print. <laughs> That'll be right. <laughs> That'll be right. I, I only look for the little words. Yeah, Being too. <laughs> a small-minded person myself. <laughs> so, but what they've done, they have essentially uh, done a much more thorough analysis, and have ruled out these structures having anything to do with life. Um, they said um, their analysis shows that biological nature does not hold up under intense scientific scrutiny. This is quoting a press release. Mm. Um, so, but quoting the authors, in other studies, apart from the possible contamination of samples with archaea, that's um, um, uh, bacteria, from adjacent lands, 
these mineral particles may have been interpreted as fossilized cells when in reality they form spontaneously in the brines even though there is no life and that's a really interesting thing for me to read because uh, within the last few days actually over the last week i've been corresponding with an astrobiologist he's former formerly from jpl jet propulsion laboratory now working in italy um who who makes this point really strongly uh, and he's pointed me to some literature actually some of it goes back to a book that was published in 1911 showing how chemical reactions uh, among minerals of this kind can produce organisms that look for all the world like living organisms and in fact this book uh, shows you know mineralogical gardens they're gardens and they've got flowers in them and plants and all kinds of growth but they're produced purely by mineral reactions Um, and uh, in fact my uh, colleague in uh, contact in uh, in italy was he he was basically um drawing a, a, a or counselling caution, I guess, is the way you put it, um, about some other work that I've quoted fairly freely in things I've written about a place in um, uh, in, in uh, northern Chile, the El Tatio geothermal field, which I've visited. It's not in, nothing like as spectacular in appearance as, as Dalol, but is still very uh, impressive. But there are features there in the rocks which have been identified with features that were found in rocks in uh, on Mars uh, by the Curiosity. Sorry, not Curiosity, it was Opportunity that found them. And that caused a lot of excitement. But my colleague is counselling against getting too excited because of this wealth of knowledge that's been built up over at least the last hundred years that you can you you know uh, mineral processes often give rise to things that look like and have similar molecular structure to living organisms and that's exactly the outcome uh, that this group the french spanish group have uh, or exactly the conclusion they've drawn about the hydrothermal springs at dalol they uh, they reckon that yes well the minerals look like um, living cells microbial cells they're not they're just produced by chemistry um, and you know as you said at the outset Andrew that kind of pours a bit of cold water on the idea that wherever you find uh, wherever you find water you find life distilled uh, not... battery acid water as it turns out yes. yeah I think so. it's not uh, even here on earth I saw the are... first draft of their media release when they sent this out they said remember that article in May of 2019 about <laughs> life in Dalol it's rubbish Yes, that's right. I decided not to release that one, but I got a copy. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about before is how life can exist in extremes. And uh, even this article talks about uh, life around thermal vents in the ocean, in caves and in um, even in fresh lava and even in... Uh, radioactive decay of uranium. Yes, that's right. So to actually find a place where life does not seem to prosper in any way or form is is quite a shock. I think that's right. That's and that's why this paper is is really worth taking note of, which is precisely why we're speaking about it today. <laughs> uh, so it won't be where there's life, there's water. It will be where there's no where there's water, there's life. It will be where there's. Uh, water that isn't distilled into battery acid, it may be life. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's right. But as you and I have also discussed, uh, there may be life forms that don't need water at all. They could exist in another um, kind of environment that they've adapted to over millions of years or whatever. So it doesn't absolutely write off the possibilities. Not not at all. No, that's right. I mean, you know, we're excited about the the methane and ethane seas of of Titan because there could be life forms in in those that, that, that use those hydrocarbons as their working fluid rather than water. It's just that here on Earth, as you said, all life, well, it's certainly true that all life uses water as its working fluid, but not all water produces life. That's the bottom line. All right. Uh, there'll probably be um, more discussion on this uh, down the track, uh, maybe some debate, I would imagine, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that one and we'll report back in if and when there's uh, more to report back in on. You're listening to <laughs> Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. And Fred, our numbers are building rather nicely on our YouTube channel, which is uh, it's very, very good. Uh, all our episodes are on YouTube. We are pushing on relentlessly to the magic 1,000 followers. We've only got 1,000 to go. No, that's not true. Uh, 320, 300, 312 should do it. Another 312. Gee, my maths is terrible. I should be an astronomer. But um, <laughs> no, 312 more and we'll hit the magic 1,000 followers on our YouTube channel. So uh, if you're a YouTube lover, as I am, uh, maybe just, um, you know, subscribe to us and then just don't have to look again, but it gets the numbers up. I never said that out loud, did I? Now, let's uh, get into some questions, Fred. Um, And this one comes from a repeat offender named Miles Bradley. Uh, Hey, Fred and Andrew, sending another question your way. This one is from my grandpa. The determined age of the universe seems to be related to the distance of the farthest known discovered object, right? Uh, Wouldn't it have taken us much longer to become that far apart? Is the question from Grandpa Bradley? Well, I assume it's Bradley. It could be something else. Yeah. But, um, cool. Thank you, Miles, for sending your grandpa's question. Uh, Fred will answer in twenty words or less. <laughs> Do you want them in the right order? <laughs> um, so the 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 the, the most um, I guess the the simplest way um, of determining the age of the universe. It's not really about the distance, the farthest known object. It is certainly involves looking at distant objects, but what you do is you find a way of measuring their distance, and there are a number of ways to do that, uh, usually involving a particular type of variable star called a Cepheid variable. Uh, so you, you find you find their distance, and you also look at how fast they're moving away from us because of the expansion of the universe. And uh, then you can plot what's called a Hubble diagram. And the reason it's called that was because Edwin Hubble was the first person to do it, where you plot the distance of a galaxy against its velocity of recession, as it's called, the the movement away from us. And uh, that essentially gives you, you, you can basically turn that upside down and look at, uh, okay, say, so everything's moving away from us. that means that at some time in the distant past, we were all in one place. 
and you can essentially turn the equation upside down and you can measure the time back to to, to when to t zero when everything was in the same place and it, in fact if you do that you get an answer that's slightly wrong it's about 15 billion years um, and that's partly because we now know that a lot of other things have happened in between it's uh, the, you know there are subtleties to this but that's just the basic method so um it's so uh, just going through to the uh, to the end of uh, bradley's grand sorry miles bradley's grandpa's question wouldn't it have taken us much longer to become that far apart uh so yes you can look at distant objects and say they're a long way off, uh, but they fit that re relationship that I've just uh, explained. Um, it's more when you when you look right back to the beginning, when we see what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the flash of the Big Bang itself, that tells us that there was a time in the very early history of the universe when it expanded very rapidly indeed. Uh, the first gazillionth of a second, it went from, you know, the size of a pea to the size of a galaxy in a tiny, tiny space of time. That's or something. unimaginable. It is, but but it, but but the reason why I would believe that happened is uh, there's no other way of accounting for that how uniform that microwave background is across the whole sky, uh, and so we know that there was a time when the universe expanded very, very rapidly, but the objects themselves within it all. Uh, you know, they all fit the bill. They, 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 they are um, part of the more sedate expansion that has taken place since that time. I'm not really not answering this very well, but uh, it, it turns out that there isn't actually a problem with the distances of the things that we measure. Uh, they are within the age of the universe, let me put it that way. So wouldn't it have taken us much longer to become that far apart? No. So you could have done it in one word. <laughs> so I, I took not 20, but 1,020. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hopefully that uh, clears it up for uh, Miles's grandpa. And uh, thank you for the question, Miles. Really appreciate it. Good to hear from you again. Let's move on. Hello, Fred and Dave. Oh, this has got to be Brock. <laughs> got to be. Cheers from Canada. Mm. My question is related to uh, uh, an article, which he, he sent us a copy of. Uh, in this article, it talks about uh, a star that went supernova twice. And looking at the pictures, the supernova is a tiny dot in a distant galaxy. How can we be sure that it was the exact same star that exploded? Aren't there possibly thousands slash millions of stars that could be in the vicinity of this dot in a very far away galaxy, or a galaxy far, far away even, Brock, uh, that it could be. Thank you, as always, from your fan, Brock. Brock Pedersen. <laughs> Thank you, Brock. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, that was a really good question, I thought. I thought that was a classic one. Um, I've got he, a button here, don't forget. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, look, Brock is absolutely on the money. It's a great question. So um, I've followed up the story and, and I know you did as well and in fact I read the um, the original paper that this is all about and it comes it comes from some work that was done in or published in 2017 almost exactly two years ago um, and it's about a star in a distant galaxy that went supernova it uh, became very very bright uh, sort of outshining the rest of the galaxy as supernovae do uh, and 
the, there are things about it that suggested that it was a fairly standard, I think a Type 1A supernova, which is one of the standard ones. I can't remember. I need to check up on that. Uh, but but actually, it, it subsequent observations revealed that it was far from normal um, because, yes, it got bright and then it faded, but then it got bright again and then faded. Then it got bright again and then faded, then again and then again, five times wow. uh, over a period of something like 500 days. That's two, you know, getting on for two years. So this is completely different from the behavior of a normal, uh, a normal uh, supernova. Um, it, it's clearly doing something else. It brightens and fades uh, uh, over this period, typically of, of the order of 100 days, something like that. Uh, so that was um, uh, from an event that was observed in 2014. Um, so it faded, got brighter, did it five times. Uh, actually, over, uh, in total, it was, um, it was th over three years. Uh, still really not fully understood. But what what the scientists did there was saw that, that you know, this, this thing had been discovered actually by a, a telescope very similar to our United Kingdom Schmidt telescope at Palomar Mountain near San Diego. Uh, that's one of the classic telescopes of all time. But they now operate something called uh, what's it called? The, the Palomar Supernova Factory, or something of that sort. It's got an unusual, uh, an unusual name. Um, it's uh, it, sorry, the Palomar Transient Factory. That's that's what the telescope is now called, and it and it looks for things that vary in brightness. So that was how they established that this thing was walloping up and down in brightness from 2014 for the next three years or so. But what they then did was look through archival data and look back through to older photographs of uh, the same part of the sky. And sure enough, in 1959, they found a, a, a brightening. And that is, sorry, it was, beg your pardon, 1954, not 1959. Um, the, the same area of the it's sky... The Fred celebrated his 40th birthday. <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> Don't you forget it, you young whippersnapper. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, so Brock's question is on the money because, you know, the 1954 event, I have a photograph of it right in front of me, is a faint smudge of a galaxy with a blob in it. Mm. And that blob probably encompasses as Brock says, millions of stars uh, that could be within that blob of light. But the, the odds are that it is the same object. And the reason for that is that this behavior is so unusual. And as I said, it's not yet fully understood. It is so unusual that um, the overwhelming likelihood is that that object uh, is the same thing that was shining in 1954. Now, just to cover the authors of this work, uh, in their paper, which was published in Nature back in 2017, and it has a list of about, I would guess looking at that, there's about 60 authors there. It's uh, clearly a huge team. Um, they dis describe the, uh, the, the event. In fact, their first sentence is a great one. Every supernova so far observed has been considered to be the terminal explosion of a star. But this one clearly isn't, because over, over three years it bounced up and down, as we've said. But then later on in their 
abstract. They say another possible eruption was recorded at the same position in 1954. And so what they're saying is it's only a possibility, but it is the overwhelming likelihood that this was the same object. Now, they're not using that, uh, that data from 1954 in any way to model what's going on with this object. For that, they've used uh, the brightness measurements that they've made. And by the way, they've continued using um, an observatory fairly close to our heart at Siding Spring, the Las Cumbres Observatory, because one of their big two-meter telescopes is there. There's another one at, on uh, Haleakala, the island of Maui. Uh, so a um, place that has uh, associations with Australia. Um, so they're, they're using the, those telescopes to, to monitor the brightness of this object as it goes up and down um, and um, essentially drawing uh, the conclusion that it's probably the same thing that was bright in 1954. And there's a really good chance that that was the case. I think. Prompts another question, though, Fred. OK, what, what, what they're saying is uh, this is a star that's gone supernova more than once. So the question pops into your brain is how is that possible? So, yes. So um, this is the exact mechanism of uh, what this star is. And some people have speculated it is something called a pulsation pair instability supernova. Uh, and one of the co-authors of the paper comments on that. And he says, according to this theory, it is possible that this was the result of a star so massive and hot that it generated antimatter in its core. That would cause the star to go violently unstable and un undergo repeated bright eruptions over periods of years. Um, and then they, there's a calculation to say that before the first explosion, whenever that was, it might have been before 1954, the star was at least 50 times as massive as the sun and probably larger. Um, Another of the co-authors comments that these explosions were only expected to be seen in the early universe and should be extinct today uh, and suggests that uh, this curious object is like finding a dinosaur still alive today. And then he says, if you found one, you would question whether it truly was a dinosaur. It's a really interesting uh, you know, piece of work that we don't really understand what has caused this, but it's something very unusual. And uh, it could pop off again. It could pop off again. Yeah, well, it is doing, you know, I mean, certainly uh, until when this paper was. Actually, I have to say that towards the end of the period that's covered by this paper, it was definitely fading uh, to, you know, below the level of, well, to almost the level of a normal supernova. It's, um, it, it's a curious object. And um, the great news is that the Las Cumbres Observatory, their global telescope network, which is what they've got, um, is able to keep an eye on this part of the sky uh, almost indefinitely. Uh, and so the, this global telescope network is probably going to show us whether there's another eruption and what that might look like. So uh, they are, it's an ongoing story, which I think is a very interesting one. So probably most likely, almost definitely the same star rather than yeah. two yeah. separate stars or more. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Brock. Appreciate the question. Uh, and, yeah, it's thought-provoking, as always. Uh, now, let's move on uh, to a question from Andrew Broadhurst. Um, now, you're going to have to do some explaining here, Lucy. Um, hi, Andrew and Fred. I've purchased a seven-day electronic <laughs> astronomic timer for switching on a dew control system in my observatory. Way too much spare time. 
Uh, the <coughs> unit is from the USA and can be programmed for regions in the USA and will track and switch on at sunset and switch off at sunrise, advancing and retreating with the seasons. Please, can you assist me? No, you're beyond help. Uh, is there a location in North America where the sunset and sunrise uh, time exactly follow my latitude here in New South Wales? I won't read the latitude because then everyone will know where you live. But six months apart, of course. That way on, for example, uh, 21st of December here, I can set the time at the 21st of June, North America, and that will track and operate the timer nicely for local sunset and sunrise. Thanks. Uh, many thanks and many thanks for the great show. Andrew Broadhurst, uh, Broadhurst from uh, Bunduk in New South Wales. Oops, I told you where he was. Uh, so he's looking for a place in North America that would equate to his exact position in Bunduk, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's right. And it's a, look, it's a great question um, because this, this timer is a very clever timer. It knows what season it is, so it knows not to switch the, the new control yeah, system so, on. So do flowers. Mid midway through the afternoon. They haven't got brains. Anyway, but flowers, flowers can't be hooked up to a new control system, Andrew. <laughs> what do you think of that? Anyway, never mind. So a great question, but it's um, like many things that come from the United States, it's only uh, you know, programmable for the United States. So his question is a great one. Uh, what can you do? Um, how, how can you um, find a place uh, in the United States that would mimic the change of seasons, the change of day length here in Australia, um, with an, but six months out of phase. That's the bottom line. So exactly as he says, on the 21st of December, the summer solstice here, you can set the timer as the 21st of June, summer solstice in North America. And you can do that. So all Andrew really needs to do is to find a place in North America that has exactly his latitude. Uh, and I'm not going to go, uh, we have time in the show to, to do that. I should have checked this up before. But the, it, it's, it's certainly within the, the, the latitude of, of mainland North America, the latitude range. So find a place with the same latitude and set, uh, as, as you say, Andrew, uh, a 20, uh, sorry, a six-month time difference uh, and it will work. There is one proviso here, though, that uh, those two places on the other on opposite sides of the equator with the same latitude, uh, they they mimic the the sun's motion uh, over a period with the six month time delay in terms of sundial time, not clock time, oh. and that's because the Earth's orbit is elongated, and so you've got to take account of the elongation of the Earth's orbit with something called the equation of time. And what that does is make sundial time and clock time differ by up to 15 minutes or so. I think it's 16 minutes altogether. So if you're happy with the thing not being good to the nearest minute and being good to the nearest quarter of an hour, then that's all you need to do. Uh, if you want it exact to the nearest minute, you've got to think again, and so do I, because I'm not sure how you would do that. Are you going to do some homework and email him back with his coordinates? Uh, yeah, I might actually look for somewhere in North America that's got the same coordinates. How's that? Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Does doesn't it? That'd be a nice thing for me to Didn't do. Mean to dump you into it, but I thought because <laughs> that's what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, uh, Andrew. 
Good luck with that. Um, no, it was fascinating, though. I'm still trying to figure out what he's actually using. It's a flower. Ah, well, that's all I needed to know. <laughs> they follow the sun. Um, so, yes, all right. Um, Fred, we'll get back to you shortly with your coordinates for North America in the same vicinity of your current location. So don't move. If you move, you'll have to do it all again. <laughs> Would be a bad move. Um, so thank you to everyone who contributed to um, our Q&A this week and um, thank you, Fred, as always, for filling us in so eloquently about the mysteries of the universe. It's uh, always great fun. It's great to talk to you two, Andrew, and long may it continue. You did talk to two Andrews, at least. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> All right. right um, so. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Yeah, it sounds good. Fred sounds... Wilson, astronomer at large, one of two people who wonder why um, they ever get out of bed of a morning, but it is because we love to do space nuts. And we uh, love that you enjoy it so much. And uh, thank you for all the positive feedback. We do get so much, and it's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, and don't forget to tell your friends, if you've got any. I mean, if you're an astronomer, you probably haven't. But um, we will catch you... <laughs> Look at your face. We'll see you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com.